Welcome back. This week on the podcast, I talked to Casey Luskin. Casey is a scientist, he is an attorney, and he's also the assistant director at the Discover Institute. And today we have a fascinating conversation around the theory of intelligent design. Intelligent design is a theory um, that is around how humans and human things became part of Earth. And we talked through the science, we talked through the data and the DNA, and he really educates me on this theory. And it's one that I've kind of thought about my whole life. I just really haven't put into thought the science and why it might have happened this way. Um, So I was really intrigued to have him on and it was an awesome conversation and it's kind of mind blowing at times, um, but that's also why I loved the conversation. Before we get into the conversation, I got to talk about Sphinx. Sphinx is an incredible company and convenience store is where you would probably know them, but Sphinx, Stuart Sphinx, they started 50 years ago and they now have convenience stores all over the Southeast But what I love most about them is what they do for their community. They have donated millions of dollars to the communities they are in um, through different organizations, and they continue to do so. And that's why it aligns so much um, with my podcast is um, they do so much for the community, um, and I really admire what what they have built. Um, If you are in South Carolina, North Carolina, or in the Southeast, you can go to the link um, in the show notes and find a Spink store closest to you. You can go to that website and also see all the incredible things um, they have done um, in their communities. And Rebel Rabbit, um, who I hope eventually might be in Spinks, and you can go pick up their drinks there, but Rebel Rabbit is an infused seltzer, alcohol-free, and their mission is to create a smarter way to drink, a smarter way to socialize. And we all know or at least I know growing up, alcohol was part of our culture. If you're going out on the social social scene, you'd be drinking an alcoholic drink. And honestly, I have realized and educated myself, and that's just not the smart thing for me to do. I wake up hungover. I wake up um, foggy. I'm not able, to, not able to be productive in the days following. And Rebel Rabbit doesn't come with any of that. They have two different levels of their seltzers, a mild hair and a wild hair. So it doesn't matter which level um, might be best for you. They have something for you and it's a great alternative to alcohol. So you can still go out, feel a little loose feeling, um, but you're going to get a great night's sleep. You're going to be able to wake up in the days following and be productive. If you go to their website, um, drinkrebelrabbit.com, use promo code LIFE20, you'll get 20% off your order, or you just go directly to the link in the show notes. That promo code will already pop up when you go to that link. Um, So if you're looking for an alternative to alcohol or you're just looking for a different drink to try, it can be after work one day. It could be when you're sitting on your couch on a Sunday relaxing. A Rebel Rabbit seltzer could be for you. So go to their link, use promo code LIFE20, get 20% off. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Casey Luskin. Casey, man, what's up? Good to meet you. First off, how you doing? How's your day going? Uh, it's been a bit of a crazy day. I was on vacation last week. This is my first day back in the office after vacation. So you know how that goes. It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, it takes a lot of work to go on vacation, you know, and that's the 
vacations are great, but you pay for it on either end. So I'm I'm paying for it right now. <laughs> That's so true. Did uh I don't know where you went on vacation, but is it one of those vacations where you just overeat and kind of old overindulge the whole time? Um, hardly actually. Um, I was visiting family down in Southern California, but my cousin and I and his son went camping on Catalina Island, and it was pretty primitive. We actually had no water, no bathrooms, no electricity, and also no shade for about three days. It was super fun, um, but definitely we were not eating gourmet. Uh, <laughs> I had like, you know, cans of chili and packets of rice. We had a great time, we did a lot of fishing, snorkel, snorkeling and kayaking, just had an epic time. It was it was really cool. Yeah. Very, so very, very cool. That's uh, yeah, a little different. We I just went on family vacation. Of course, all we did was eat. So I was like trying to figure out my eating habits when I get back <laughs> back in Greenville. I um, I've done those too. I've done those too. <laughs> yeah, right. Sometimes you get the best of both worlds. I uh, I'm excited to have you on. I was telling you before we request uh, press record that recently this has been a big topic in my mind, in my brain. I've been trying to figure out what intelligent design is and the evidence behind it. And just like, you know, once you dive into it, you realize there's this huge community out there for both kind of uh, sides of, is it human evolution? Is it intelligent design? You know, where do they collide? And doing research, you know, I found you at Discover Institute and I, I got linked up with you and I'm very excited to have you on. What did it, can you tell people more of your background and then we'll kind of get into what intelligent design is? Sure. So um, I work at Discovery Institute, which is uh, sort of, we call ourselves the leading institutional home or a think tank for the theory of intelligent design. And we can get into what the theory of intelligent design is, but we're, we are a think tank. Uh, we're nonpartisan, nonprofit, uh, public policy think tank. We deal with many issues from transportation to communication to uh, foreign affairs, economics, urban planning, education, bioethics, leadership. But I think we're most well known for our work in the area of origins and sort of, you know, where did, how did life begin? Uh, what is the origin of the universe? Are we the result of strictly um, sort of unguided material evolutionary processes? Or is there some design behind life and the universe? So my uh, academic background is I got my undergraduate and master's degree in earth sciences from the University of California, San Diego. And while I was there, I actually took a lot of courses in evolution at the undergraduate and graduate levels. So I sort of have a pretty solid background in evolutionary biology. Um, and then uh, I went to law school, actually. I decided to get a job. <laughs> I should uh, maybe maybe go to law school. So I went to law school and I became a California licensed attorney. Um, I've been a California licensed attorney since 2005. And then in uh, 20, at the very end of 2015, early 2016, I went back to school. Uh, I, I thought I was done with school. I'd sworn off school, but <laughs> somehow it got me. And I uh, went back and got a PhD in geology at the University of Johannesburg. So my wife and I moved to Johannesburg in South Africa for about a little over, a little under four and a half years and uh, had an amazing experience doing that. I got a PhD in geology there. And again, had many opportunities also while I was there to learn about the topic of human evolution. My research was on Archean geology. So my, my PhD topic was not on human evolution, but I was able to visit many of the famous uh, hominid fossil sites and hominid fossil museums interact with some leading paleoanthropologists, people at some of the top, uh, you know, human origins research institutes in the world, had a lot of great opportunities to learn about um, the topic of human origins while I was there. 
and it, it really increased sort of my skepticism of the <laughs> standard evolutionary story of human origins. So uh, my role at Discovery Institute is I'm associate director of our Center for Science and Culture. Our Center for Science and Culture is essentially our intelligent design or ID program, as we call it. Um, and one of my major roles there, or here I should say, as I help to manage our uh, what we call our ID 3.0 research program. We're basically, we're funding research of scientists uh, both around the United States and also internationally. And we're funding research into intelligence design. I manage a lot of these research projects. I also do a lot of legal work still, helping basically to defend <laughs> and advise uh, teachers, uh, faculty members, students, parents, educators of different backgrounds to be able to uh, talk about this debate openly mm -hmm. um, in schools uh, or in universities without having to fear for their jobs or getting fired or, you know, getting kicked out of the, the graduate program or whatever. So I do a lot of the sort of the academic freedom uh, side of things as well, although my main focus is the science. And that's certainly what I prefer to do is is on the science side of things. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me and a, a, a sort of a little bit about Discovery Institute. When you were um, when you were growing up and I guess maybe till 2015, 2017, 2018, where did you where did you stand on human evolution and how did that, you know, change or evolve to intelligent design? Sure. So, well, I, I mean, I think to talk about my journey with intelligent design, we have to go back to my college days because I actually, I worked at Discovery Institute from 2005 onwards. So I, I've been a proponent of intelligent design for a long time. And it started off for me when I was as, a, as an undergraduate at UC San Diego, I was taking all these courses in evolution. And I wanted to understand evolution. I wanted to learn about it. UC San Diego, I, I don't know if it still is. I think it probably is. But at the time I was there, it was the number one public university for biology research in the entire United States. So they have a very, very strong scientific biological focus at UC San Diego. And, uh, you know, I wanted to learn about this topic. And so uh, I was taking courses in evolution. I remember the very first course I took uh, my first uh, uh, semester of my freshman year was called history of the earth and evolution. And I would get up at this, you know, when you're, when you're an undergraduate freshman, like you can't get up before like 10 AM because you're up <laughs> hanging out, talking to friends every night in the dorms. But some, I had this 8 AM class that I'd get up for run across, you know, just literally running across the quad, almost half in my pajamas still and get there right as it would start. But in this class, you know, we were learning about how natural selection works and all the complex organisms that have appeared over the history of life. And in that and other courses I was taking, I was thinking, okay, can you evolve these complex um, features we see in, in living organisms in the step, little step-by-step-by-step -step manner, one little mutation at a time, mm -hmm. a manner that is required by Darwin's theory? And I thought it seems like there's a lot of features that are highly complex, where lots of parts, lots of complexity needs to be present before that part is going to work to give you some advantage to help you to survive and reproduce. And so my very sort of, you know, no offense to college freshmen, I was still, you know, working things out. And, of and I, in my sort of rudimentary freshman way of thinking, I was thinking, you know, there seems to be a problem here that the evolutionary mechanism faces, that it can't build things in this step-by-step -step mechanism that's required by Darwinian, neo-Darwinian evolution, the modern theory of evolution, um, in order to build these complex features. It's not going to get you there. You have to have all this complexity there all at once, or it's not going to work at all. And so at the end of my freshman year, a buddy of mine, who was also a science major, suggested I read this book called Darwin's Black Box. And I don't know if you've heard of that, Sam, but Darwin's Black Box is a very foundational book in the intelligent design world. It's by a biochemist at Lehigh University named Michael Behe. And in that book, he basically coins this, this concept of irreducible complexity. And really what he did was he put into words 
what my rudimentary freshman brain had been thinking that that whole year that he, he came up with this idea where basically there are many features in biology that are irreducibly complex. If you reduce their complexity at all, then they stop working and they basically require a core number of parts in order for them to function. These parts by definition cannot be built in the gradual stepwise manner required by the theory, the, the mechanism of natural selection and random mm -hmm. mutation that the modern theory of evolution requires. And so they're a major challenge to Darwin's theory. And in that book, Michael B, he doesn't just talk about, you know, larger organisms. He talks about irreducible complexity at the biochemical level where we've discovered, and this is for me was really an amazing eye-opening book to read. Um, I learned a lot about how the cell works reading this book, that the cell is full of what we call micromolecular machines, that there are all these miniature protein robots that are running around our cells performing all kinds of important functions. And many of these machines contain lots of different protein parts, protein components that are all interface compatibility where they can work together to form some function, much like a machine with multiple parts. I'm not saying that the cell is a machine, but I'm saying it contains many smaller structures that are what we would call molecular machines. Mm -hmm. And this term is used not just by the intelligent design community. You can find many mainstream researchers have compared uh, you know, the, the these function, these functional components and cells to molecular machines. Um, in fact, um, Bruce Alberts, who's a former member of the US National Academy of Sciences, he says the entire cell can be viewed as a factory that contains an elaborate network of interlocking assembly lines, each of which is composed of a large set of protein machines. Why do we call the large protein assemblies that underlie cell function protein machines? Precisely because like machines invented by humans to deal efficiently with the macroscopic world, these protein assemblies contain highly coordinated moving parts. That's a quote from a former president of the, U the US National Academy of Sciences. Uh, no friend of intelligent design, but certainly an expert in, in biochemistry mm -hmm. and cell bio biology and molecular biology. So in this book I read by Michael Behe, he described many of these molecular machines, uh, things like the bacterial flagellum, which is like an outboard motor that allows bacteria to swim around to find food or um, other molecular machines uh, like the cilium, which are used in higher organisms, kind of like a whip-like structure. We have cilia all over our bodies to move fluid around, move move mucus, to move all kinds of parts within our bodies. Um, and these molecular machines, he argues that they are irreducibly complex and they mm -hmm. pose sort of a fundamental challenge to the Darwinian explanation that we we always hear about in our classrooms and in you know PBS Nova documentaries and all that. So for me, that was my first introduction to intelligent design. And um, I just it just all went downhill from there. Mm -hmm. I started reading other books by ID proponents, started taking more classes, and started just learning about this debate and just, you know, really dove deep into it and got really interested in it. So it's to, for me to understand that, that's that's me thinking if you look at humans our DNA, our molecules, the way we are designed is almost more complex than what natural selection could have provided. I, I, I certainly agree with that. I think that natural selection requires that every little mutation gives you some advantage in survival and reproduction. You can also have mutations that don't hurt you, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, we often have mutations that are called neutral mutations. They don't, don't really do anything. But when you're going to build some feature up, you're going to build some complex feature that helps us to survive and reproduce, whether it's we're talking about, you know, molecular machines in our cells or or the eye or, you know, hearing. 
every mutation that is that is making some you know change needs to give you some advantage it to help you better survive and reproduce or it's not going to be passed on to the next generation or at least there's no reason why it should be passed on to the next generation if it does get passed on maybe just by chance but the way darwin's theory is supposed to work is it wants to say we can give you a rationale for why these mutations are going to you know accumulate mm -hmm. to build these complex features because each successive mutation helps you get better and better at doing something okay and so you build things up one little step at a time what we see with these irreducibly complex structures is that you have to have all of this complexity present all at once or the system doesn't work to give you some advantage some benefit in surviving and reproducing so you can't build them up one little mutation at a time so what kind of a cause can basically put together all of these complex components all at once to give you some new feature to help you survive and reproduce. Well, we would argue that the best explanation for the origin of these irreducibly complex structures mm -hmm. is a mind, mm -hmm. is an intelligent agent. Because an intelligent mind can think with forethought and will and intentionality to come up with some complex blueprint that will bring together a bunch of you know, very precise parts to give you some you know function ready to go all at once as soon as you need it and that's exactly what we see in biology these complex features that require many parts to be there all at once or they don't work yep. so it's the kind of it looks like it requires the kind of forethought and planning that would require a mind to be a the cause of its origin gotcha to certainly understand what you're saying with the history of intelligent design where would y'all say it started or where where are some of the first examples you 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 could say well, you know, the debate over our origins goes back thousands of years. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the ancient Greeks, where you had people like Plato and Aristotle, who actually believed that there was a mind that was behind the universe. Um, and then you had other, uh, you know, ancient philosophers. Um, Democritus is one who was more like an atheist, who believed that, you know, na nature could essentially create itself. Um, and so this is not a, a new debate. It's been carried out throughout you know, both Western civilization and probably all civilizations in the world, um, certainly um, in the Islamic, uh, great Islamic civilizations, they develop some of these arguments. Uh, one of the strongest arguments, I think, that comes out of modern cosmology is looking at the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And the Big Bang points to a an, an origin, an abrupt origin to our universe, which points to sort of almost like a creation event. And it was Muslim scholars, also some Christian scholars were involved with this, who developed something called the Kalam cosmological argument, which is an argument that says that anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a first cause. And modern cosmology has shown that the universe did begin to exist. It's finite in its age and it's finite in its size. It, it, you can basically, you can retrace it back to an infinitely dense and small point where it was created from. So the universe began to exist. That suggests there's a first cause outside the universe that brought it into existence. Very compatible with this idea of intelligent design, or if you want to believe in a sort of an external creator to the universe. So this debate, you know, this issue has been going on for, for centuries, millennia. Um, most recently, though, in the last couple hundred years, so, so Western civilization, when this modern science, this thing that we currently have science, when it got going, the early scientists, people like Isaac Newton or Boyle or Kepler, they all started doing scientific pursuits because they believed in God. They believed in a law-like creator. And they believed that this law-like creator, this lawgiver, 
would not just create moral laws for us to live our lives by, but would also create natural laws that would govern the universe. And they believe that by studying nature, they could go out and discover the laws that God used when he made the universe. So they were inspired by their belief in a rational, orderly creator and a lawgiver to go out and study nature and seek to find this, you know, the, the orderly nature of our universe and the laws that govern it. And, and, and because of this, they were spectacularly successful in basically inventing the modern methods of science that scientists even use today. Mm-hmm. And it was all started because people believed that there was a creator, an, a rational, orderly creator behind the universe. And that bore very good fruit. They were able to make all kinds of discoveries under their sort of theolo- Judeo-Christian theological you know, inspiration for going out and doing science. It turned out that it worked. So science was very friendly to belief in a creator, belief in an intelligent mind being behind the universe um, until really the 1800s, where there was a shift. And that shift, to be quite frank with you, did it, it was a long process, but it did largely center around Darwin's theory of evolution. So prior to Darwin, most people looked at biology and thought that, you know, again, the complexity of life requires a mind. We see, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a living organisms, we see even before, you know, we, we had, were able to study the cell under the microscope, people knew that living organisms were highly complex. They could look at the heart that pumps blood through the circulatory system. They could look at the eye and see how it reflects, reflects, reflects light in order for us to be able to have vision. All kinds of these complex features, people thought, okay, this requires, you know, a, a mind, an intelligent cause. And so even prior to Darwin, we can see the word, the term intelligent design being used in the scientific literature, okay? But when Darwin comes along, he says, you know what? I've got a different explanation for how the complexity of life diversified and arose. It's called natural selection. And I can explain this without any recourse to a mind or a God or, you know, an intelligent agent. And so when Darwin came up with that idea, it it did sort of initiate, it was a, it's a, it was a major domino that fell in a shift that was going on to change the way science operated and really move science away from seeing, you know, the evidence as pointing to a mind or a creator behind the universe and, and life. And really that there, we sort of live in this purposeless, meaningless universe that is strictly material. There's nothing more than matter and energy, and that can explain everything, you know, just basically matter in motion and, and essentially uh, matter comes before mind rather than mind coming before matter. And so uh, Darwin's theory had a major impact, not just on biology, but upon all, you know, many of the sciences, just mm-hmm. that way of thinking, that way of approaching science. And so what we like to say here at Discovery Institute is that, you know, that really was 19th century science, okay? Darwin's theory isn't completely wrong. I mean, natural selection, there's no question, it is a real force that operates in nature. We can mm-hmm. see it when we have antibiotic resistance, for example, where, you know, a, a strain of bacteria doesn't get killed by some antibiotic. Well, it's it's being selected for, and then it survives and it reproduces, and then, you know, you get an antibiotic resistant strain. Okay, fine. Natural selection is real. But what we would say is that now that we've sort of opened up what we call the black box of the cell and discovered all the complexity of of what's really going on under the hood in biology, you know, Michael Behe called his book Darwin's Black Box. We've opened up this black box of the cell. We're now seeing a complex world of miniaturized factories and molecular machines that Darwin could only have dreamed of. Mm -hmm. And it really outstrips the ability of natural selection to explain. So, um, so yeah, so I would say that, you know, the, the modern theory of intelligent design got a real boost when we started to understand the complexity of the cell, things like DNA, the information in our DNA, things like the molecular machines that we're finding in the cell. Um, and also for modern cosmology, things like discovering that the universe 
started off with a bang, you know, yeah. billions of years ago where, you know, that bang points to a first cause. Uh, things like what we call the fine tuning of the universe, where we can see that many of the, the laws and constants of the laws of physics have to be just right in order to create a, to yield a universe where life can exist. All this very, very precise fine tuning of the laws of physics, where they have to be exactly the way they are, or you can't have a universe where life can exist. We're making all these discoveries that are pointing to a, a designer. We would say that intelligent design got a major boost from many of the recent discoveries of, the, say, the last 10, 20, 50, you know, 80 years in science. Um, but the idea of intelligent design is really nothing new and has, has been has a tradition within science that goes back not just centuries, but actually, I, I would argue, you know, millennia. Rebel Rabbit is on a mission to provide a healthier and smarter way to socialize and drink. Their alcohol-free cannabis-infused seltzers are perfect for anybody just trying to kick back and relax after a hard day at work or on the golf course with your friends or hanging out at a party and you want to wake up and feel better the next day. Their seltzers are perfect for you. They are a great alternative to alcohol as well. Their website is drinkrebelrabbit.com. Use promo code LIFE20. You'll get 20% off your order. That link is in the show notes. But join the mission and start drinking and socializing smarter with Rebel Rabbit Seltzers. Does Darwin's theory have an explanation of Big Bang and the creation of the universe? So no, and I wouldn't I wouldn't criticize Darwin's theory for that. I mean, Darwin's theory is supposed to be an explanation for how new species arise. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, that really was it was called the origin of species, right? And he was trying to make a biological explanation for how a new form of life can arise from a pre-existing form of life um, through natural selection. You know, there's variation within a population. Sure. Some members of that population are better able to survive and reproduce than others. And so they tend to leave more offspring and the species naturally evolves in their direction. That's that's natural selection in a nutshell. Um, his theory was never intended to apply to modern cosmology or physics. Now, what we see in modern cosmology and physics is, I would say, similarly materialistic models that are only invoking sort of matter and energy to try to explain or explain away, you know, the evidence for the fine tuning. So we see ideas like the multiverse being brought up in yeah. physics and cosmology. I don't know if you're a Marvel fan, but you know, there's been a lot oh, yeah. of talk about the multiverse in the last few years. So, I mean, Spider-Man, it's a great movie, uh, but it really brought this idea out into the mainstream, right? That there's many different universes. Well, the reason that that idea exists is because physicists realized that there is a degree of fine tuning in the laws of nature that's so extraordinary that you would have to envision almost this huge, vast ensemble of universes existing for you to imagine just one single universe getting so lucky, sort of winning that cosmic lottery to get all the parameters just right where life could exist. And we're talking about, you know, numbers like, you know, the, 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 the precision of some of these fundamental laws of, and constants that allow for life to exist um, are, you know, things like one in 10 to the 90th power is the degree of precision. That's the value of, that's the precision of the cosmological constant, which controls the expansion of the universe. Um, or, you know, the, the value of the gravitational constant. It has to be precise to an, in one part in 10 to the 35th power, or you can't get a universe where life can exist. Uh, the most impressive one is something called the initial entropy of the early universe. Um, basically, the, the distribution of matter and energy and how disordered things were. Cosmologists and physicists have determined that in order to get a universe where you can have matter 
clumping together to form things like stars and galaxies, which of course would be necessary mm -hmm. for life to exist. The fine tuning of the early entropy of the universe would need to be fine tuned within one in one in one part in 10 raised to the power of 10 to the 123rd power. Okay, so we can't even, <laughs> you could try to write that number out, start writing that number out, you're gonna die long before you even get close, okay? So the precision of the laws of, of nature to allow life to exist really is quite extraordinary. And physicists have yet to come up with an explanation for this that invokes you know, sort of materialistic causes. So they like this multiverse idea to try to say, well, if we just sort of imagine that there's this cosmic lottery out there and there's all these other universes with each one has different laws of nature, maybe just by chance, one would get lucky enough to get all these right parameters so life could exist. But there's no evidence for this, this multiverse, okay? We only have evidence for one universe. And the mechanisms that they invoke, by the way, to try to explain this multiverse, those mechanisms themselves require even more fine-tuning. So you can't really escape the problem of fine-tuning no matter what you do. Even the multiverse does not help you escape the problem of, of fine-tuning. We can get into that more. But the bottom line is, you know, the evidence for, for I think, the creation of the universe and the design of the universe is really quite extraordinary. Darwin's theory, you know, I'm not going to critique Darwin. It was not intended to explain that. But even from the physicists and cosmologists who, who are trying to explain that, I don't think they have a good explanation for it. Mm -hmm. Well, I do believe, like you said, there's some real world examples of Darwin's theory work that, that are out there with, with, the, with life and not just human life. Is intelligent design also in place for animals and the first, you know, dinosaurs or the first life we've seen in the universe? Sure. So in the ID, we call it the ID community. Um, we have this motto that says we're going to follow the evidence where it leads. Okay. So ID does not have a problem that perhaps in some cases, natural causes are the best explanation. Okay. There's no, we're, we're perfectly happy if the explanation goes, you know, in sort of a, a natural evolutionary mechanism, but we want to make sure we're testing the evidence in each case to ask what is the best explanation. So for the origin of life, I think that most ID theorists would say that, that you're not going to be able to produce, say the first cell or the first self-replicating molecule, which is often what they say, that's the first life form. Uh, you're not gonna be able to do that through sort of just blind chemical reactions. Mm -hmm. And one of the main reasons for that is that life at its fundamental base has information, okay? In our DNA, we have our DNA molecules basically a long chain of nucleotide bases. There are these base uh, pairs and they come in, in four different uh, molecules, adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. Guanine, And these four nucleotide bases have to be strung in a very, very specific order to encode all the proteins in your body. Or if you want to talk about, you know, a simple life form like a bacterium, even in a, in a simple bacterium, every single protein in that bacterium is encoded by the order of the nucleotide bases in the DNA. Now, there's no chemical or physical law that says that those bases have to be in any particular order, okay? But yet they are in a very precise order that is just right to allow for these functional proteins to exist. And if you have the wrong ordering of these base pairs, if you get, you know, a mutation going, going back to, you know, comic book movies, you get the X-Men or something like that with, you know, in those movies, mutations are always doing something good. But when you look at the literature in the scientific community, usually when we see mutations that are actually doing something, they are invariably damaging to an organism or mm -hmm. destroying some function at the biochemical level. 
So mutations are not very good at building up, you know, getting you the right information you need. Think of writing a computer program, all right? Uh, when I did my PhD in geology, I kind of got sucked into the world of Python programming. I ended up writing over 30,000 lines of Python code during my PhD. And what I found is that if you want to put a new function in, you need new lines of code, right? And I, this is my life for like years. My wife got me a t-shirt that said, <laughs> I dream in Python. Cause it's like, all I could think about was, was Python, Python. It just, it never leaves your head. So in order to generate new lines of code, you don't generate code through randomly typing keys on the keyboard. All right. It just is not going to get you the specificity you need. But yet in our DNA, we see something that is very, very closely analogous, if not almost identical to computer code, where our DNA literally contains commands and codes that are read and interpreted by those machines in your cell to then produce some output. The output would be these protein robots that are going around and performing all the functions in, in your cells. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it starts off with information in the form of computer-like commands and codes in your DNA. Well, random and unguided blind mechanisms don't produce information that is useful, that is going to be, you know, helping to build a functional protein in the same way that you would never use a, you know, a random number generator to produce computer program, to produce computer code. Okay. So we need some cause that can explain how all this information arose in the first forms of life. And we think that, you know, what we're basically seeing in life is a language-based code that is interpreted through computer-like pro information processing to produce machines. But where in all of ex our experience do we see language-based codes arising or computer-like information processing arising or machine-like structures arising? In all of our experience, those things come only from intelligence. Mm -hmm. And yet that is what is at the very heart and the very basis of life. And so the origin of life is certainly one key example where we think that an intelligent intelligent design would have been necessary to get life going. There's other examples as well. We can get into that. I mean, I think that the origin of animals mm -hmm. requires sort of a, a quantum leap in complexity. Uh, we see in the fossil record, you mentioned dinosaurs. When many groups of organisms appear in the fossil record, we see them appearing abruptly um, without direct evolutionary precursors. Uh, paleontologists have a word for this. They call it explosions. Mm -hmm. I took a lot of paleontology in my geology studies. We see explosions throughout the history of life, okay? In fact, it's the dominant pattern. When new major groups of organisms appear in the fossil record, they appear abruptly without direct evolutionary precursors. It's true for the first major groups of animals. It's true for the first land plants. It's true for the first flowering plants. It's true for the major types of dinosaurs. It's true for major marine animals, major groups of fish. It's true for birds. It's true for mammals. It's true for our own genus Homo, Homo sapiens. You know, when when our own genus appears in the fossil record, it appears abruptly, very distinct from the, our supposed um, ancestors, which are called the Australopithecines. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we see this pattern throughout the fossil record that does not document slow, gradual evolutionary transitions. And we would argue that the best explanation for this, you know, sort of abrupt appearance is that it's representing a very rapid and, and, and massive infusion of large amounts of information into the biosphere. And again, where does information come from? Information comes from intelligence. And so when we see this abrupt appearance of new types, types of organisms, it's like, you know, when a new kind of uh, technology gets developed, smartphones, and suddenly you get all these new smartphones appearing, okay? Well, the same thing happens in the false record. A new kind of organism appears, you see all kinds of new variations of that appearing abruptly without a clear 
evidence of, of sort of a gradual evolution from some ancestor. So we think that that pattern is also much better explained by intelligent design mm -hmm. than the standard evolutionary paradigm that's that's out there in the scientific community. Would it, in my thinking, is it something, say, the first intelligent design could have been an animal, could have been a dinosaur, and then there's another another explosion of intelligent design where it could have been some sort of species of humans, and then there's another kind of explosion that kind of continues till we get to around where we are? Well, we, we try to just take the, the, the evidence at face value, and what, what does it say? And that is what you just said, Sam, really very, very good description of, of, of kind of what we see in the history of life. We see one type of organism appearing abruptly, you know, call it, uh, we, we'd say, you know, uh, uh, dinosaurs, okay? And then later on, we see another type of organism appear abruptly, uh, birds, and we see diverse groups of birds appearing, again, quite explosively. And then we see the major orders of mammals appearing quite abruptly in a very short period of time, uh, mm -hmm. typically without, you know, evidence of some evolutionary, uh, you know, gradual evolutionary pathway being shown from the fossil record. So we do see that pattern throughout the history of life. So, you know, what does this tell you? Well, maybe there were different types of organisms that were progressively designed over the history of life. Uh, maybe Earth was progressively being sort of terraformed and prepared by, you know, an intelligent creator for the eventually, you know, the coming of humans, or mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, but it, it kind of looks like that's kind of what we see going on in in the history of life. Is there um, in the intelligent design community and just not that I mean, communities in general, they could be just people that believe that this is, you know, how human evolution and the origin of humans started. Is there some sense of like what we call the intelligent agent? Is it a God? Is it, you know, where do we, st you know, where, where does that fall in the ID community? Sure. So, so before I answer that question, let me just say my own personal view, because I always think it's important just to be very upfront about where you're coming from. I personally am a Christian and I do believe that the designer is the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, you know, I try to be, be very open and transparent about where I'm coming from. Um, now, I also have a, you know, scientific background. So I hold my views, you know, due to scientific evidence. It's not just my, it's not like my religious beliefs say that intelligent design has to be true. If intelligent design turned out to be false, I would, I would still be a Christian. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I think it's supported by, by the evidence. Um, now, all that being said, Within the ID community, we have a diverse a group of people of many different backgrounds. We have folks in the ID community who are uh, of a Jewish background or Muslim mm -hmm. backgrounds, people of Eastern religious backgrounds, Hindus, uh, Buddhists. We have people who would call themselves agnostics, and certainly we have many Christians as well. What we're all united around is that there is evidence in nature for a designer you know, being the best explanation for many features of life in the universe. And so you don't have to commit to some particular religious view or whatever view mm -hmm. of who the designer is to see that there's evidence for design in nature. Um, it is a it is an idea that stands apart from theology or religion. You don't have to have any religious presuppositions to be able to see that there's evidence for design in nature. Uh, a great example of this actually is, is an atheist named Thomas Nagel who uh, is a very famous intellectual, and he's written books actually defending intelligent design. I don't know if he fully agrees with it, but he says, look, this is an idea worth taking seriously. Sure. Um, on, on a few years ago, there was an, uh, there was an atheist uh, a philosopher named Bradley Monton who wrote a book about intelligent design, and the subtitle was An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. I think that's what it was. Um, another uh, interesting example. 
a philosopher named Anthony Flew. Uh, if you and I had been alive in the 1950s and 60s, we definitely would have heard of Anthony Flew because he was like the guy, he was almost like the Richard Dawkins of that era who was going out and debating people like C.S. Lewis. Okay, He was a very famous public intellectual atheist who was very critical of religion. Well, in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, Anthony Flew learned about this new scientific evidence that was coming out supporting intelligent design. And he went through a major intellectual shift where he actually wrote a book that was titled, There Is No God, except on the cover, he crossed out the word no and said, A, there is a God. And the book was all <laughs> about his reasons for this intellectual shift. And the evidence for intelligent design was one of the major reasons he cited, the information mm -hmm. in our DNA, and also looking at the evidence from cosmology for a beginning to the universe and the fine tuning of the laws of nature. And so what he said is basically, look, he, he actually, to my knowledge, never committed to any particular religious belief before he died, but he did convert from atheism to some form of belief in, in a God, you know, whether it was like a traditional religion, I don't, I don't think it was, mm -hmm. but he definitely had a major shift and he came from that strictly from, you know, an atheistic perspective. So you don't have to come at the evidence with religious presuppositions to see that there's evidence for design and nature. And the theory of intelligent design tries to restrict what we can learn from a scientific investigation. So it doesn't try to get into larger, you know, religious questions like what is the identity of the designer? Although people are very open about what they believe personally, um, the theory itself doesn't try to specify, you know, who is the designer, mm -hmm. et cetera. Those are more, you know, th there's that's those are important questions. They're very interesting and important questions. Sure. But I think that the theory of intelligent design is not going to address that. I think that, you know, you have to address that from other fields like philosophy or theology or or history or, you know, those sorts of things. So, so yeah, so so I would say that um, uh, intelligent design as a theory does not address the question of who is the designer, but it certainly does point to the fact that there is an intelligent designer behind life in the universe. Very cool. I, that's, I think that's a great point of view for it too, because in my own personal experience, I'll go back and forth about is there a God? Is there multiple gods? But I do believe there's probably there is a God or there's somebody out there. Like, I don't know personally exactly what it is all the time, but I feel like there is something out there that is higher and above us with with the debate of it being taught in schools versus Darwin's evolution in schools. Can you tell talk me through? Is it being taught in schools? Why isn't it being taught in schools if it's not? And then the debate why Darwin is being taught in schools. Sure. So uh, I actually deal with this a lot here at Discovery Institute, helping to advise people on what they should teach in public schools. And at Discovery Institute, we do think that Darwin's theory should be taught in public schools. It's mm -hmm. been very influential in modern biology. And there's a lot of interesting and even, you know, in many cases, meritorious aspects to Darwin's theory. And the modern theory of Darwin's theory is what we call neo-Darwinism. It basically incorporates our modern knowledge of genetics and DNA into this idea of natural selection and explains how natural selection can work within, you know, within DNA, within the kinds of, you know, discoveries we now understand a little bit more about how life works, obviously. So um, I do think that the, the modern theory of evolution should be taught to students in public schools. What we Discovery Institute say, however, is that when it is taught, you should teach students not just the evidence for the th that theory, you should learn about the evidence for evolution, but you should also learn about the evidence that challenges evolution. And uh, we've actually have a list of over, it's now over 1200 PhD scientists who say that they are skeptical of the ability of random mutation and natural selection to explain the complexity of life. 
And so, you know, there's many scientists in the scientific community who are very skeptical of the core tenets of the modern theory of, of Darwin's, the modern version of Darwin's theory. Um, and this is also in the peer-reviewed literature. When you look at the peer-reviewed scientific literature, you can find technical papers that are saying, look, many of these features do not look like they can be built up by the, this mechanism of natural selection. Or how do we produce new animal forms, what we call new animal body plans? Mm -hmm. um, how do we account for the abrupt appearance of many types of organisms throughout the history of life? These are largely unresolved questions for evolutionary biologists. And you can read that, you know, they, they recognize these deficiencies in their theories of evolution uh, in, in the mainstream scientific literature. So we think that if scientists could acknowledge these weaknesses mm -hmm. in the modern theory of evolution in the technical literature, then students should be able to learn about that, especially if they're already learning about the evidence that supports evolutionary theory. So we think that students should learn about the evidence for and against evolution. So evolution is taught almost universally, ubiquitously around the United States. Almost every single public school district is going to be teaching evolution to its students. Um, there are probably, I would say, somewhere between eight to 10 states right now that have statewide policies that either require or permit teachers to teach about the scientific problems of evolution alongside the evidence for evolution. So that's good. This is actually allowing students to learn about all the evidence to sort of have full disclosure of the evidence so they can make up their own minds. It also allows them to engage in critical thinking, to learn to, mm -hmm. to think like scientists, to weigh the evidence on both sides of a question, and then be able to sort of do critical thinking, critical argumentation, and come up with whatever they think the best answer is. And that's how science is supposed to work. So it's teaching them to actually think like scientists. Now, what about intelligent design? So a lot of folks are actually surprised to hear this, but when it comes to public schools, we actually do not support efforts from public schools to push ID into the curriculum. And the reason for that, Sam, is because we found that when ID gets pushed into public schools, it tends to politicize the debate, mm -hmm. uh, tends to result in a lot of controversy and lawsuits. And that politicization actually ends up resulting in increased persecution of pro-ID scientists and faculty at the university level. And that persecution ends up actually hindering the ability of those scientists to be able to grow and develop the theory of intelligent design as a science. And that really is our priority with intelligent design. We want to see it grow and develop as a science. That's why we're funding research into it and not just you know saying we want to push this into public schools. We're not trying to do that. We want to see it grow and develop as a science. And so we've tried to uh, you know really counsel people when they come to us. We advise them don't you know go and push ID into the public schools, but you should be teaching evolution objectively. It's already in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's already part of the curriculum. So if you're going to teach it, teach it objectively, teach it accurately. Let students use it as an opportunity to gain critical thinking skills yep. and learn how to think like science scientists and and give them all the evidence so they can make up their own minds with with all the information that's available. Yeah, very so that's true. what we say. Yeah. yeah, I think that's great. Like point of view of, of like they're just trying to get all the information so they can use it to think critically to make up their own mind is there a way is there a reason is it because of a religious reason or, or why does it get politicized when it does try to get into public schools in a way like what's the pushback is there what who's pushing back on it well we have seen this over and over again sam uh over the last few decades of being involved in this debate and this is actually something that goes is really unfortunate. It's a much broader problem now than just intelligent design. But we have seen that by and large, the scientific community is highly intolerant of scientists 
who are challenging the evolutionary paradigm. Okay. I mean, I've worked on cases where scientists were denied tenure or denied a job or kicked, students were kicked out of graduate programs or uh, scientists lost their lab space or their funding uh, because of their support for intelligent design. And unfortunately, you know, we want to think that science is totally open-minded and always open to, to new ideas. And, and I'm not saying all scientists are like this. I mean, uh, I think a lot of scientists are open to hearing new ideas and mm -hmm. are open-minded. But, but unfortunately, what the history of science shows, this actually goes back to Thomas Kuhn, a very famous historian of science at the University of Chicago, and he said that in the, if you look at the sociology and the history of science, he actually said scientists are typically intolerant of new ideas. And so this, what I'm saying right now is actually pretty well accepted in sort of the the world, the field of sociology of science and the history of science. And we have really seen this and experienced it. So, you know, what we have said in the ID movement is that we were getting canceled before cancellation was even cool, you know, <laughs> like before it was even a thing. They kind of honed their cancellation methods on us. Uh, and I don't know if any of you, if, if you have seen or heard of a documentary called Expelled with Ben Stein, it came out in 2008, mm. but it actually tells the stories of a number of scientists who uh, face discrimination and persecution because of their uh, views on Darwinian evolution and their support for intelligent design. And this is very real. I mean, I've seen very good people get all kinds of terrible things happening to them because of their not towing the consensus, quote unquote, consensus view on Darwinian evolution on evolution. So um, so what happens with the schools is that as soon as you want to, I mean, let's just not even talk about hellish design. This happens when we just want to bring in, say, peer-reviewed criticisms of the standard evolutionary paradigm that contradict what students are also going to learn. They should also learn the evidence for evolution, but mm -hmm. they contradict, you know, sort of the pro-evolution arguments. What happens is all the local university professors, not all, but, you know, we often have we often have some that come out supporting what we want to do, but you know you get the local community college biologists and the local university biology department heads coming out and saying, "Oh well, this this is not science. There's no disagreement on evolution. There is no conflict." I think that was a, a line from Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back. You know, <laughs> there is no conflict over evolution, and science is settled, and we can't have any discussion over this in the in this among students. I remember once a, a leading a activist who. Uh, we call them you know, part of the Darwin lobby. Uh, she said that there are no weaknesses in the theory of evolution. So, I mean, you get these really bold dogmatic statements. And I, mm -hmm. you know, this sounds like I'm sort of being a little bit harsh on them. I'm actually giving you like direct quotes from the kind of rhetoric that we regularly experience mm -hmm. when we see we've seen these debates occur on, on school boards. And what we do is we say, well, look, they can say whatever they want. They, they have every right to be pro-evolution, but we're going to present you with you know, a hundred peer-reviewed papers that challenge core tenets of the modern theory of evolution and show you that there is a real debate here. Mm -hmm. And so we're not saying that evolution should be taken out of the schools. We're not even saying that students shouldn't learn the 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 view of the community college professor that the evolution is correct. He his view should be taught. We don't disagree with that. But what we're saying is that you should also teach that there are scientific criticisms of these views. Let students have access to all the evidence. Don't censor. It's really censorship. Mm -hmm. Don't censor for them. So this problem, Sam, has this is problem has become very ubiquitous in science over the last few years, this being closed off to new ideas and the politicization of science. It's not just on the evolution topic, although I think that it was it kind of got in some ways got really started or kind of really metastasized <laughs> within this issue that we work in. But now it's grown well beyond the cancer has grown well beyond. 
And there are many people who now have seen over the last few years the politicization of science, the the lack of openness to dissenting views, the trying to shut down and marginalize views that disagree with whatever is declared to be the quote unquote consensus of the day. All these things. It's it, and and look, I'm a scientist, right? I got a PhD in geology. I've done a lot of spent a lot of hours in the lab, seen a lot of suns come up in the lab, and I think science is a great thing. I think science is a great tool for learning about the world. So it pains me to see this happening because I think science is really being damaged by this politicization and it's it's not good. It's not a healthy state for science to be in and I hope that scientists of goodwill whatever their views happen to be that scientists of goodwill will stand against this and stand for for freedom of inquiry, freedom of research, freedom of thought, all these things. It's vital right now that this happens in the scientific community. Yeah, that's uh it's it's wild how you describe that and it just reminds me of I feel like so many things going on in the world today where we we just I wish we could just all get more information and let people have all all the information that's out there then let them make up their mind for themselves. I mean uh, big big tech is involved right now, right? You google something and you get a disclaimer warning saying mm-hmm. this is not the consensus view. Well, okay, fine. That's actually okay to know. Like we should take the consensus very seriously. But the and the consensus can be right, but the consensus can also be wrong. In mm-hmm. fact, every single scientific revolution that ever took place happened because someone was allowed to challenge the consensus. So if you're not allowed to ask hard questions and sort of promote minority scientific views, science can never progress. This is very, very dangerous to the health of science. Yeah, so true. Engineered sleep makes the best mattresses out there. Sleep is the number one thing you can focus on right now to better your performance on a daily basis. And you might as well be sleeping on an engineered sleep mattress. Like I said, their products are the best and their customer service is second to none. Their website is engineeredsleep.com. If you use promo code LIVE15, you'll get 15% off your order. So if you or someone you know is looking for a new mattress, reach out to the team at Engineered Sleep and they'll hook you up. Again, their website is engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE15 to get 15% off your order. With um, Darwin's evolution, I kept reading about uh, a fossil, I think it was called Lucy. What's the what's the intelligent design perspective or thought on their findings of Lucy, the fossil? So let me be clear about one thing. So within the intelligence design community, there are some people who accept that humans have common ancestry with apes. And there are some people who are skeptical of that. Okay. We all, I think, would agree that if you're go- just to produce, and I don't, I don't know about all, but, but I think many folks on both sides of that question of common ancestry would agree that to produce the differences between us and, and, and sort of an ape-like ancestor that lived four to eight million years ago would require so many changes to produce a human that it could not have occurred through standard, blind, unguided evolutionary mechanisms, that there's not enough time in the fossil record to produce you know, the many millions of DNA differences between us and a chimpanzee in just, uh, you know, say, four to six million years since we supposedly shared a common ancestor. I think right now the best estimates I would say show that there's there's upwards of 100 million base pair differences between us and a chimpanzee, okay? And so if just according to some of the papers that have come out studying the mathematics of evolution, a field we call population genetics, if just two of those, you know, many, many millions of mutations, if just two of them were required mm-hmm. in order to give us some advantage, you wouldn't get any advantage until those two mutations were present. Then the mathematics of evolution or population genetics suggest that it would take over 
200 million years for a trait like that to arise in a population of organisms like hominids, like primates, sort of our supposed ancestors, mm -hmm. okay? But yet there's only been about four to six, maybe eight million years since we shared a common ancestor with, with chimps, according to the standard view. You can see there's a time problem there. There's not enough time in the fossil record to allow for all the complex differences between us and a chimpanzee to be able to uh, arise in just a short, uh, few million years in the fossil record, okay? So what I would say is whatever is the case, whether we share a common ancestor with apes or not, the, the origin of humanity was not an unguided, sort of blind evolutionary process. There had to be some intelligence that was guiding it. Mm -hmm. Now, I personally am a skeptic of human-ape common ancestry. And when I look at the Australopithecines, I see an ape-like species that had many differences from humans. Lucy probably spent most of her time in the trees. Uh, she, pro she probably was capable of knuckle walking. She probably had some capability to do upright walking, what we call bipedalism. Mm -hmm. But the upright walking that she had was very well suited for probably walking on tree limbs. Okay, It was not a form of bipedalism where she could run and walk like we do. Additionally, Lucy's brain size is basically about the same size as a chimpanzee. Okay, So she had a very small brain. Her mode of walking, her mode of locomotion was very different from that of modern humans. And when you look at the technical literature, you can find actually that the mainstream paleoanthropology literature acknowledges that there is a large unbridged gap between the, the earliest members of our genus Homo, which are very human-like, by mm -hmm. the way, and these Australopithecine apes. And there is not fossils that, that sort of bridge an evolutionary transition between the Australopithecine apes and the earliest members of the genus Homo. There's a large unbridged gap there. That's the kind of language that we see from leading scientists talking about this. So I really don't think that we see good fossil evidence mm -hmm. um, of human-ape common ancestry. You want to talk about the genetics? We sometimes hear that humans and apes have a genomes that are only that are 99% the same, you know, only 1% different. That statistic is false. It's been debunked by modern studies of genetics. At the very least, our genomes are somewhere between four and probably 16% different from our supposed most closest relative, the chimpanzee, all right? But the point is this, even if we were 99% the same as a chimp, so what, all right? Well, all that shows is that we were built upon a common blueprint, all right? And I think that common design, and we're not 99% the same as a chimp, by the way. It's it's At best, it's like 96%. And some of the studies suggest perhaps as low as 84% similar. It's actually an open question because we don't have good versions of the chimp genome. And the versions we do have use the human genome as a scaffolding. So they are they are more human-like than they ought to be. But that's a whole other question, a whole other topic. But you know, whatever the percent similarity happens to be between humans and chimps, those functional genetic similarities could easily represent us being built upon a common blueprint, C kind of like you know getting back to computer programming. When computer programmers write a new program, they will often borrow code from pre-existing programs to write that program. Okay, I used to do that all the time. I would borrow code from me, or I would Google mm -hmm. stuff, you know, and figure out how to make the code work. I would, you know, computer programmers do this all the time. Microsoft Windows is just, you know, borrowing the previous version of Windows and then hopefully improving it. Usually it gets better with each iteration, not always. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I'm a Windows user, so I can say that. But, you know, that is what computer programmers do. They borrow code. 
So why couldn't an intelligent agent use a very similar principle of reusing mm -hmm. programming modules in our DNA to build new types of organisms? And so we see sort of this common design, this reusage of, of programming modules in uh, different types of organisms. So the fact that organisms have similar DNA, that could be pointing to common design mm -hmm. just as much as it is pointing to common descent. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's our minds, all right? The human mind is totally different from the mind of an ape. I mean, yes, apes are very intelligent. In some cases, they actually can do things that we, they have very good memories, for example. Mm -hmm. They can sometimes beat us, beat a four-year-old on a memory test, okay? So fine, apes are smart, all right? But at the end of the day, I mean, they don't have <laughs> complex language. They are not building complex technology. They don't compose sonnets. They don't compose, uh, they don't, uh, they don't um, uh, interact with religion. They don't create literature. Um, we're the ones that write scientific papers about apes, not the other way around. So there's a huge, you know, massive gulf in the intellectual and cognitive capabilities between a human and our supposed nearest relative, the chimpanzee. Um, what's interesting also, you get this field called evolutionary psychology, which tries to explain the origin of the human mind in evolutionary terms. Mm -hmm. And according to that field, you know, every human behavior should be tied back to helping our ancestors to survive and reproduce. So everything that you do, Sam, you know, the, the type of uh, the way you like to have your bacon cooked, the reason that you love your spouse, um, the, the reason that you uh, like the Blue Jays over the Dodgers, I have no idea if you're a baseball <laughs> fan, you know, whatever it is that you like to do, you do it because of evolutionary psych, evolutionary reasons that are tied to, you know, forces that caused your ancestors to pass on their genes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is called evolutionary psychology. The problem is that there are many human behaviors that seem to far outstrip the requirements of evolutionary psychology that our ancestors, all they had to do was just pass on their genes, right? On say, you know, in on the African plains a million years ago. Um, if that's all we had to do, why does every single human civilization compose this amazing thing called music? Why do we create beautiful art universally? Why do we all compose literature? Why are we all doing mathematics? Uh, why is every human civilization engaging in, you know, this religious devotion to deities? Uh, why do we build cathedrals? Why are we creating science to study the deep mysteries of the universe? Almost all of humanity's most cherished behaviors would be totally unnecessary if all you had to do was survive and reproduce on the on the you know the grassland plains of of Africa a million years ago. All right, there is no reason why you predict all of these complex behaviors that humanity does today. So I think that's very interesting. I think it shows that humanity was designed that for purposes that are higher. We were designed for purposes that are higher than mere survival and reproduction. Okay. And it points to the design of our species for higher purposes than just passing on your genes, which is what evolutionary psychology says. At the, at the end of the day, that is the ultimate explanation for everything you do mm -hmm. is just to pass on your genes. Why do we love? Why, do, why does Oscar Schindler risk his life to save all these Jews you know, during World mm -hmm. War II, who weren't even part of his clan or his family. It's very difficult for evolutionary psychology to explain many of the most beautiful, cherished human behaviors. Why did a guy die on, the cro die on a cross 2,000 years ago, you know, saying that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? You know, these are, and these are universally held values among all human cultures as the most, the highest form of human morality. But it goes totally against what you would expect if all our ancestors had to do was just pass on their genes on the African plains a million years ago, okay? So I think that um, evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology in general fails to explain 
the origin of the human body, human genetics, and the human mind. And I think that intelligent design is a much better explanation. Yeah, I mean, because it's so complex. Like you can't you can't figure it out. Just I feel like from natural selection or some you know evolution throughout the years. What about uh, if somebody's interested in learning more? You know, they've listened to this podcast, so they're just in general curious. Where could they find more information? Sure. So uh, please feel free to check out our websites. Uh, we've got, uh, I think our, one of our best ones is just intelligentdesign.org, sort of a gateway portal to learn a lot about our, our stuff. You can also go to our main news site, which is evolutionnews.org. We've got daily articles there, evolutionnews.org. And then we have a podcast uh, that's idthefuture.com. Uh, so not trying to compete with you, but if you really, you know, if you sure. want to dig even deeper into this kind of stuff, check out ID the future. Uh, you, you're not going to get the diversity. I'm sure that people get on your podcast, Sam, but if they want to dive deep on ID, uh, check out ID the No, totally. I actually, uh, I have it pulled up right in front of me with, uh, with Casey, where do you see Casey? Where do you see this going in the next hundred years? Do you know, do you see it eventually being, um, more of an accepted theory? Yeah, so it's really interesting, interesting, Sam. Um, what we have seen over the last 10 or 20 years are increasing numbers of papers in the mainstream technical literature that are criticizing the standard evolutionary paradigm, okay? So it's becoming more and more kosher in evolutionary biology to, to criticize the standard neo-Darwinian model, mm -hmm. okay? Now, folks are not ready to give up on purely material, you know, just basically, you know, your purely natural, unguided evolutionary models. So they're coming up with now what they call post-Darwinian models. There are other models of evolution, like what we call the extended synthesis. It's a, it's a sort of a new Wild West version of evolution where there's supposed to be all these other forces that can possibly help explain how new features arise. When we look at these new models of evolution, we see that actually, in many cases, they're actually even worse than the old Darwinian paradigm, the mm -hmm. old neo-Darwinian paradigm, at explaining the origin of new complex structures. So I think it's going to take some time, maybe a couple, I don't know, a generation or two, I don't know, but it's going to take some time for evolutionary biologists to realize that, yeah, neo-Darwinism doesn't work, but also many of these post-Darwinian models of evolution don't really get the job done either. They're not totally wrong. I mean, each one is giving us a little piece of the puzzle, sure. but they're not answering these fundamental questions like where do new complex features come from? Um, I think for that, I mean, I, I think already we see the intelligence design movement and community growing. We see our research program growing. So I think that we're going to continue to grow. Um, we have a summer program where we have students come from all over the world every summer to learn about intelligence design from our top scientists. And many of them are going on now to get graduate degrees, getting faculty positions. And there's sort of now this, this, there's this community of new up and coming generation of scientists who are very friendly to intelligence design. They haven't just been hearing the, the caricatures that were being taught by their college professors. They've learned about ID straight from the scientists who are developing this idea. And they really are, uh, you know, the ones who are going to carry the torch for ID in the future. Mm -hmm. So I'm very bullish on the long-term future of ID, but I think it's going to take some time for, um, for sort of mainstream biology to give up on purely materialistic, naturalistic models. And once they get to that point, I think they're going to be w willing to consider intelligence design, but it could take some time to get there. 
Well, Casey, thank you so much for joining me, man. This has been incredible. You've educated me um, to a new level, I think, in my own thinking and, and understanding of it. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for taking time out of your first day back from vacation. <laughs> I really appreciate it, but for real, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Sam. Appreciate your time and appreciate the great questions. Thank you for listening. Give our partners some love by visiting their links in the show notes. Spinks Convenience Stores, you can find the location nearest you. Rebel Rabbit Seltzers, they're on a mission to socialize healthier and smarter, so join the mission. And Engineered Sleep, making the best mattresses in the game. You might as well be sleeping on an Engineered Sleep mattress. For me, if you could give our show a five-star rating on your listening platform, that'd be greatly appreciated. And thank you so much for listening.